Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, November 7th. With Election Day tomorrow, concerns about the role of disinformation and misinformation have been brewing for months, if not years, because of what happened in 2020 all over the country, as you know. And according to Politico, um, Elon Musk fired half of Twitter's public policy team a few days ago going into election weekend, including personnel who handle account verifications for politicians, uh, which is to say some of the people who were supposed to spot disinformation on Twitter and eliminate it. Also, just yesterday, the New York Times reported that Russia has reactivated its bots, its disinformation bots, just in time for the midterms, in order, quote, to stoke anger among conservative voters and to undermine trust in the American electoral system. This time, it also appears intended to undermine the Biden administration's extensive military assistance to Ukraine. That from the Times yesterday. Many election officials are worried. In early August, election officials from Florida and Colorado wrote to the Department of Homeland Security secretary, urging the agency to, quote, help track and remediate doxing, threats, and harassment of election officials. We talked on the show last week about the threats to poll workers. A little over a week ago, the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, the National Counterterrorism Center, and the Capitol Police released a big joint warning that election-related perceptions of fraud will likely result in attempted violence by extremists. So let's talk about it. With me now, Andrea Bernstein, who covers democracy for ProPublica and contributes to NPR covering Trump legal matters. She's co-host of Will Be Wild, the podcast about January 6th, and author of the book, American Oligarchs, the Kushners, the Trumps, and the Marriage of Money and Power, and also Ilya Meritz, freelance reporter for ProPublica, NPR, and co-host of the podcasts Trump, Inc. You remember Ilya and Andrea doing that together when they were WNYC employees and we were producing that show, and the podcast will be wild about January 6th. So Andrea and Ilya have now co-authored an article for ProPublica titled How the Biden Administration Caved to Republicans on Fighting Election Disinformation. And that's precisely what we're going to discuss. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ilya. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Brian. Great to be with you. So, Andrea, you want to start and lay out the timeline for our listeners a little bit? What did the Department Department of Homeland Security pledge to do in order to fight misinformation? And how did we get to a place where most of those efforts, you report, have been paused or canceled. Yeah, so I think it's, you know, sort of worth just going back for just a moment to the environment after the last election, uh, January 6, when it was clear that the words of the former president were motivating people to commit acts of political violence. And in the immediate aftermath of that, there was a lot of hand-wringing in the security community, a lot of people that I spoke with who felt distraught <laughs> that the warning signs were there, that not enough had been done. And when there was a trans- uh, peaceful transfer of power and, and President Biden took over, his administration sort of went uh, 
pretty forcefully ahead with identifying that, that disinformation, it's not just about sort of political spin or uh, expressing vehement opinions, it's about spreading false information in the political environment in a way that some people will, will pick up on it and, and act on it and commit acts of violence. And it was really identified early on as a key domestic terrorism threat, disinformation that needed to be addressed. And there were some robust initial efforts uh, in the Biden administration. There was a domestic terrorism report that identified mis and disinformation as a key problem. The Department of Homeland Security recognized that it needed to coordinate its efforts. And it set up, uh, sort of began to set up late 2021, early 2022, what it called a disinformation governance board, which was designed to sort of coordinate efforts around this. And it's not just an election thing, although that is a prime threat. Uh, one of the things that happens after disasters is people put out mis and disinformation. It happens regarding immigration and uh, lots of intersecting interests of the Department of Homeland Security. but. When word of this board leaked, there was a fierce pushback by right-wing in, uh, influencers and, and some Republicans and uh, saying, this is attempting to stifle our free speech. It's identifying people that disagree with the administration as domestic terrorists. And what our reporting showed is that inside the Department of Homeland Security, there was a real reversal there was a sort of, this is too politically sensitive, we need to pull back, we can't do this. And, and here we are in this political environment leading up to the 2022 elections where we have never in American history had this kind of vast mis and disinformation circulating right before the election uh, where you have, and, and Ilya has talked to now probably dozens of election workers uh, who are under threat, who are sort of, you know, people who uh, maybe had the political profile of a, of a sort of uh, library worker or <laughs> a cafeteria mm -hmm. lunch lady or a school crossing guard, people trying to do their civic duty who are suddenly getting death threats, uh, having you know people show up at their homes. Uh, and this is the environment that we're going into right. where the disinformation is awful and uh, the, th the sort of attempt to combat it has, was really curtailed uh, prior to this election. Picking up on what Andrea wrote, um you wrote that the Department of Homeland Security completely canceled a project that, you write, would have tracked online death threats to election workers and offered them enhanced protection of their personal information, unquote. So what is DHS doing, if anything, at this point to protect election workers from different types of threats or intimidation or actual physical violence? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked, Brian, because it's important to emphasize DHS has not completely pulled back from election-related activity and efforts to help election workers. Actually, right before the show, I was watching uh, a video that they put out, uh, I think like three weeks ago, uh, about de-escalating confrontations at polling places. Uh, a source of mine tipped me off to that video, and I was like, I got, I got to see this, and you know, they talk about how to recognize the signs of an agitated individual. Maybe they have bald fists or they're pacing or they're unwilling to follow the rules of the polling place. Um, you know, and election workers are advised to say things like, I see you're upset instead of saying, you know, calm down, sir. Uh, so, so that's that's quite interesting. And there's there's a, a fair amount of 
security activity going uh, going on, tabletop exercises, that kind of planning. The reason that this piece of it matters around mis- and disinformation is that that is a driver of the threats. Absent the idea that elections are fraudulent, absent the notion that uh, your polling place or vote by mail can't be trusted or drop-off boxes can't be trusted, you won't have people making (laughs) these kinds of threats and having these kinds of confrontations with election workers. Uh, Andrea mentioned uh, I've talked to a lot of people in the election worker community uh, over the past several weeks, um, and what I heard from almost every single one of them is the balance of their work has really shifted. So uh, there's always been a public-facing component where you are communicating to the public about how voting works, what to expect on election day, how to get an absentee ballot if you want to request it, uh, how the system works, how privacy works. That's always been a part of it. But it's gone from like, you know, 20% of the day to 50% of the day. So that means that these election workers have less and less time or they're even harder pressed to actually do the work of administering elections. And that in itself uh, may cause some problems because when you're sort of triaging between a lot of hostile incoming questions and doing the work of running an election, that's when uh, mistakes may happen and problems may crop up. So, you know, again and again, I heard that this is a really combustible mix and we don't know, hopefully voting goes smoothly this cycle. Everyone hopes that it will, but um, the chances that it doesn't one place or another are a lot higher than they've ever been in the past. This is a, a really new thing. It's 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 very very unusual for people to be, for Americans to be so activated around co- concerns about voting. Most of which, many of which, are fueled by mis and disinformation. George in Bay Ridge, you're on WNYC. Hi, thank you for taking the call. Uh, I have no social media presence whatsoever, but I received a mailing from what calls itself the. Uh, Congressional Leadership uh, Foundation saying that Max Rose voted uh, for inflationary spending with all the uh, Joe Biden spending increase, except Max Rose hasn't been in office during the Biden administration. So, I mean, it's it's not opinion. It's just total misinformation. Thank you, George. That's interesting. Yeah, I know that uh, that group that you refer to, that's a big pro-Republican PAC, political action committee that buys a lot of ads, um, if I'm hearing the name that you stated correctly. And I guess, Ilya, that's a form of disinformation. It's true that Max Rose used to be a member of Congress from Staten Island and part of Brooklyn. He was defeated in 2020 by Nicole Maliotakis, the Republican. So at the same time that President Biden was elected, Max Rose was kicked out of office, so he couldn't have voted for any Biden policies. So that might be an example of, you know, I haven't seen the exact wording, either disinformation per se or a hard spin on positions that Max Rose took in the past that they would say are consistent with the kind of spending that they object to. But I think you're talking about different kinds of things, primarily. Andrew was giving a few examples. Um, Maybe you can give a few more. What is the really damaging 
disinformation, not even a lie about a particular candidate's policy positions, but the kinds of things that your report really focuses on that are so troubling and new? Well, the, the really damaging stuff is all the stuff about the, the mechanics of elections. It's all about the idea that drop boxes aren't safe, uh, the idea that an election can be stolen through mail-in voting. Um, you know, and again, and it, as Andrea said, every election there are irregularities. Usually they are small. Hardly ever are they decisive. And usually they're handled and addressed very quickly and efficiently. You know, it's interesting once you start sort of delving into the architecture of American elections, and it's extraordinarily complex. They're run usually by local authorities under state auspices. There is coordination with the federal government. There can be coordination with, uh, with, non uh, with you know, sort of umbrella nonprofit best practices groups as well. And what we've found uh, really since the last election is that there are all these lies coursing through the bloodstream about that architecture that has, you know, slowly taken root over time that has made our elections so secure and people are finding lots of ways to raise doubts about it. And that is what's really damaging because ultimately uh, if, if people form the view that voting can't be relied upon, that your vote isn't safe, uh, that's going to motivate more people to violence. It's also going to may cause uh, some people to drop out of voting, just say it doesn't matter. A lot of Americans already don't vote. If fewer and fewer Americans vote, fewer and fewer Americans feel they can vote safely, uh, that's an issue for our democracy. So it is very concerning. It's not to say that lies about candidates don't matter. They do. Uh, but lies about the system itself are, <laughs> I mean, frankly, this is what like Russia and China and Iran are hoping for. They have tried to do these kinds of things in their own disinformation ops. And now we are finding that it's happening domestically. Um, so it, it is very troubling. Andrea, as we run out of time, um, your article on ProPublica about the Biden administration pulling back on its misinformation fighting efforts came out before this weekend, so before some of these latest misinformation news stories. Um, but I wonder if I can get a quick take from you on the two that I saw over the weekend that I mentioned in the intro, um, Elon Musk taking over Twitter and immediately firing a large number of staff, many of whom were in charge of account verifications for politicians, the kinds of positions that were in the past looking for misinformation and disinformation and maybe taking down those tweets, um, that staff has been thinned out just in these days going into Election Day when that kind of disinformation might peak. Plus, Russia reported by The Times to be unleashing, unleashing bots um, with their latest misinformation campaign aimed at this Election Day. How do you see either of those things adding to the chaos or the uncertainties or the threats that you report on in your article? So on the question of Twitter, um, I mean, I, you know, one of the things that quite a few people have spoken to me about, and, you know, it may not be apparent to sort of ordinary, ordinary users of Twitter, but sort of scholars and researchers who study this say that in the 2020 election, Twitter actually managed to 
tamp down and stop some election lies uh, and, and played an effective role. And they felt that, you know, sort of Twitter was more hands-on, there were alerts, obviously they ultimately deplatformed the former president. And all of that, they said, actually did, you know, help cool things off relative to what they might have been. Obviously, the fire is still very, very hot. So there is a real concern about if Twitter is indeed going to walk away from that. Uh, you know, there was the whole question about the blue checks, how you could get a blue check. Uh, there was a real fear related that, you know, somebody could get a blue check for $8 that said, for example, you know, Maricopa official. Um, today, there are new guidelines from Twitter about, you know, what it, the penalties are if you're impersonating people, but it's a lot of confusion. It's a lot of confusion before a very key election. And as to sort of Russia and Iran and others uh, spreading disinformation, uh, the, you know, I think one of, clearly, one of the things that sort of activated the U.S. government was what happened in 2016. And Russia's both uh, sort of, you know, hack campaign, uh, but also it's, uh, the disinformation that it spread through the Internet Research Agency during the 2016 campaign that was intended to sow divisiveness among Americans. And the feeling was that that had worked and that the U.S. needed to build up protections against it. And I have heard from senior, uh, you know, sort of security officials and uh, former uh, DHS officials that one of the key fears is that foreign actors take advantage of this disinformation to promote their own ends. So what appears to be happening now is that some foreign actors are sort of jumping in. And in particular, according to this reporting, we're supporting uh, Republicans with the idea that Republicans would be less forceful on Ukraine than Democrats. So obviously that is sort of exactly the kind of scenario that is feared, that a you know, foreign actor like perhaps Russia is able to take advantage of discord for its own uh, internal aims. And the alarm is, is that without an aggressive response, that that just becomes more and more and more of the information environment that we're in where people don't know what's true, people, policy people make decisions, uh, there's a sort of sense of fog and chaos that infects the political environment and the sort of basic bottom line of democracy has always been that at the end of the day when there is an election result, both parties agree. That's the pact that has kept democracy going and that's the pact that people feel is in danger right now. Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Meritz their latest article for ProPublica is called How the Biden Administration Caved to Republicans on Fighting Election Disinformation. Thank you both for joining us with this disturbing report. Great talk. Thank you, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time. <laughs>